Hello, everybody. My name is Asher, your host for the Revenue Journey podcast, where we interview and grab unique perspectives from amazing individuals doing technology sales within the APEC and ASEAN region. Now, you may be someone who may still be early in your tech sales career. Have you thought about how things will look like for you 10 years from now? Emily, the guest for this episode, started a tech sales career in 2007, more than 15 years ago in a familiar company called Salesforce. Now, in the span of 10 years, she did everything from prospecting to closing deals to being a sales trainer in the corporate world. But what's even more impressive is that through patience, discipline, and pure hard work, she is semi-retired today, living in the Netherlands with her family and running her sales consulting business. In this episode, she shares how she achieved financial freedom and gives advice to the younger generation of tech sales professionals. So with that being said, let's get this episode started. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the Revenue Journey podcast. And of course, thank you for being a guest on this show. Now, Emily, before we start, I got to ask you, how are you feeling today? That's the first question. And second question, how's Netherlands so far? Oh, I feel both excited and really honored to be on this show. And today we're having a very good autumn day, like super sunny and warm. Um, So yeah, that's how Netherlands is like. It's not like Singapore, all the seasons are summer. Here we have uh, autumn. Yeah, and thanks for sharing, Emily. Of course, Emily, later you will share a little bit about why you are in Netherlands now and, you know, uh, what you are currently doing. But, you know, kind of let's just jump into it, right? Because I think, Emily, I think something that is different about you, unlike some of our previous guests, is that you were a salesperson, but right now you are technically still a salesperson, but you run your own business today. So let's really understand more about what you're currently doing and some of the previous companies you work for so as listeners have more context. So maybe Emily, start off by telling us what you're currently doing right now. Okay, I, I guess I'm not just different for that aspect. I'm also probably the first non-Singaporean born guest on your show. So I guess I would just include a little bit of my bio to help the audience understand my background. Um, I was born uh, in 1982 in Beijing, China. I spent my first 16 years of life in China growing up there. And then I came to Singapore in 1998. And I lived in Singapore for 18 years. And that is when I started my tech sales career. In 2016, I came to live in the Netherlands. Here is where my husband grew up. And I started to do a freelance uh, coaching to sales professionals. And that is my business now. Mm. Yeah. And I think you mentioned, right? So right now you're doing a freelance coaching, but also at the same time, I know you mentioned you started your tech sales career quite early back. Um, You're working in companies like Tableau, for example, Salesforce, both as a salesperson and as a trainer before. So maybe just share, share with us a little bit more about those roles that you did before. Okay, um, the title uh, in your episode, The Decade, is referring to the time between 2007 and 2016. Actually, I worked in total for four companies, namely Salesforce.com, PointPal, Lumas, and Tableau. Um, In the first three companies, I was only doing an individual sales role, only until uh, my last 1.5 years in Tableau they asked me to switch to sales trainer. Um, so then I changed my 
path, basically. Um, now I look back, I think my career path is a bit ahead of my time, but maybe right for your time. And what do I mean by that? You see, when I started my sales career, SaaS was a brand new world. And also BDR, SDR is also brand new. I believe mm. both things were pretty much invented or introduced to the mainstream by Salesforce.com. And um, I first did 2.5 years of purely inbound qualification at Salesforce. And then I did purely one year outbound prospecting role in Salesforce. And then only after 3.5 years, I entered an AE role. And that, that role I did in PointPal, in Lumas, and also in Tableau. And that is a mix of inside sales, meaning mainly selling through the phone and also field sales. And that is not the kind of path my generation of AEs typically take because not, not many of them had the first SDR, BDR experience, you see. Yep. And in terms of my, um, um, the, the, these four companies, right? Two of them are from North America. One is European headquartered. And, and one of them is the Australian Canadian uh, founder. So um, these four companies, when I joined them, they were all, I mean, beside uh, PointPal, which, which I am a salesperson number one, the other three were all having less than 50 employees in the entire APEC region. And all of them were at a stage where they were trying to break into the APEC market. So this is quite unique because it means I experienced possibly the fast, fastest, fastest growing period of these companies in APEC. And therefore, I can relate very well to all the previous guests sharing about coming into a new market, trying to find a landing point and then penetrate the market, eventually grab the majority share. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. and in terms of the countries I covered, uh, mostly were greater China region, except for, I think, Point Pao and Lumas, I was covering uh, Singapore. But I also uh, worked with uh, pretty much all the six regions in APAC when I was a trainer. So I do know a bit about India, Japan, Korea, and ANZ in that, in that sense. And um, when, when you ask about the type of companies, the persona I sell to, industrial and vertical, and also company size, right? I, I realized that my experience is also quite unlike my sale, uh, my generation of salespeople. And it's primarily because the company was salesforce.com. Mm. Salesforce.com was selling CRM and it sells to all departments. So I have to interact with like VP of sales or CEO and then VP of service and then VP of marketing. And of course, CIO will be involved, right? Mm. Uh, and at that time, like 10, more than 10 years ago, most of the other soft co software companies were usually only sell to IT or mm -hmm. only sell to a particular department. Like for example, when I was selling at Lumas, they are selling talent management software to HR. And um, so really uh, Salesforce and Tableau are the two companies that I have the experience to sell to all departments. And then um, in terms of the company size, 
I think Salesforce was also the one that started this slogan called democratization of software. So from Salesforce introducing the subscription model, uh, small companies like those less than 10 employee size could start to afford good software like the big banks could do. So I Mm. sold to one person startup and also selling to a thousand employee kind of company while I was at Salesforce. And that is, (laughs) that is the experience, which means the sales cycle duration, the stages and the complexities are all very different from one to Mm. the other, as you can imagine. Right. And uh, I think lastly, I think Salesforce is probably the first company that has built flexibility into their software system to to accommodate all kinds of tweaks to suit all kinds of industries. So while I was selling um, in 2007, 2008, we actually had a customer story page that listed all kinds of industries that have customers using Salesforce. So the challenge for us was to really remember those use cases and be able to share those stories on the phone, depending on whoever the lead come from, which industry they come from, you see. Mm. Okay, so that is quite a bit of a history, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. No, and and Emily, I think really appreciate you kind of sharing that, right? Yeah, you know, I'm quite a sales geek myself. So whatever you mentioned about Salesforce being the one to introduce this whole BDR, SDR role, them introducing a software as a service model, all this I've read before, you know, Mark Benioff was, was, you know, very, very big. Evan Ross, you know, the first, the first sales director to introduce BDR. So I, I really enjoyed kind of that, that, that whole memory down, uh, that trip down memory lane when you kind of went through some of the history, right? And I think that is really one of the things we want to tap on today because you started your tech sales career in a different, I would say in a different era when yeah, things were a little bit sure. different. But you also went through like pretty much what we are going through now, this whole BDR, AE, this whole um, sales ecosystem, tech sales ecosystem. And I think that's really what we kind of want to dive into, right? Because that was the thing I realized that was so interesting about your profile when, when we first spoke. And, you know, we, we, I don't know if you remember, but when we first talked on LinkedIn, I was actually just coming back from Malaysia. It's a business trip with one of my previous organization. So, yeah, uh, I'm not sure if you remember that when, you, when we really kind of first spoke over LinkedIn. Yes, of course, I remember. I remember it was June this year, but I didn't know you were just back from Malaysia. Uh, so yeah. when you found my article on LinkedIn and then we connected, I was immediately grabbed by your posts and the things you are sharing because they were also the things I feel important. And that's why um, I have been following a podcast since then. And I'm really honored to be on this show because I realized that it takes decades to walk down this path and know what it is like. I was very fortunate to meet many seniors that passed down their wisdom to me. And Mm. And their advice have helped me tremendously so i truly believe that if i could just collect all this advice put them together and pass down to the next generation through your show i think it will really help many of you navigating your life path yeah and it's my honor to have you as well emily i think the same thing the reason i start this podcast is really to bring all this perspective from different people put it in a place where people can access right so yeah really really happy that you are here to share those experiences 
of course, there are many things you can dive into considering your experience. Um, but maybe let's just start simple. Let's find out a little bit more about you as well. People come to tech sales for different reasons. What drew you to tech sales in the first place? Let's answer that before we go into some of the other questions. Of course, I think that's a very good question to start with. And actually, I have written an article about that. Um, in short, actually, uh, my life plan came first before my career plan. So going into tech sales was just a byproduct. Um, I know everyone grows at a different pace. For me, I was heavily influenced by Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was 22 years old uh, in my first year at NUS. Um, the book made it clear for me that um, what financial freedom means and how I can achieve it. And at that point, I thought the path is to become an entrepreneur. In the book, Rich Dad emphasized that one key skill to become a successful entrepreneur is sales. So while I was in my last year in NUS, I had two offers. One is uh, from Tech Semiconductor because I was uh, majoring in system engineering and they offered me a machine engineering uh, role. And the other is a sales rep role from salesforce.com. They actually uh, have the same starting salary. So, um, so that take the money consideration aside. And by that time, I was already very clear that um, I wanted to learn sales. And this is a company that actually paid me money to learn this. So of course, I would jump in, right? But of course, at that time, I had no idea who Salesforce was and how much it would grow to the brand we know today. But mm. when I look back now, I really think that that 4.5 years in Salesforce is really like a master degree in sales and business and entrepreneurship. And I learned mm. from so many great people around me and they stay to this day, my mentors and close advisors. Yeah. And that's how I come into tech sales. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And of course, maybe you may not know who Salesforce is back then, but I think today, most people that you walk around, as long as they know tech, they know companies, most of them would know what Salesforce is or what Salesforce does. So I think, I think like I said, it's sometimes, you know, when money is out of the picture, it makes things easier. But yet I think it was also a good step for you, you know, to kind of went into that sales direction. Because I had a technical diploma as well, but I kind of decided to go into sales as well. Yeah, there are actually many people did that. And there is actually an edge I would say, because we are selling software, right? So our tech background does help. It's like we, we may not be the most techy people if we compare to the sales engineers, but for salespeople, we are you know, techy enough. Yeah, but, but I think more importantly, we, it's also about the business conversation, right? The ROI, things like understanding KPIs, understand business objectives, which is something I also learned as well during my time in sales. But of course, speaking about, uh, you know, going into tech sales, I, I kind of want to jump into the first question, right? So you spoke about how you go into tech sales. We actually have a lot of listeners uh, in this podcast who are either they are aspiring tech sales professionals, they want to go into tech sales, or maybe they are early in their tech sales careers, just like myself. And I want to kind of dig into some of these lessons you learn throughout your decade career, because uh, I believe you will be very beneficial to them. So... Let's start with the first one, right? Which is, we spoke about this thing about having a long-term plan for your tech sales career. Uh, there's typically two paths, right, in sales. You can go into 
sales management, sales leadership, or you can just remain as an individual contributor all the way. Now, depending on the path that you take, you mentioned that an organization will look at you differently uh, as, as, you, you know, as you grow older in your tech sales career. Maybe you can share a little bit more about that because I think it was really interesting where you shared it with me. Yeah, um, actually, there are more than two career paths, which we, I will share later. But before I go there, I just want to show you the money first. Because let's be honest, many people come into the sales for the money, right? And um, when I, uh, I don't know if if your previous, uh, any of your previous guests have already shared this, but comparing to different uh, industries, uh, tech sales is definitely one of the best paid sales roles. I know during my time, people still associate sales uh, mostly to like car salespeople or insurance salespeople, right? And they don't really, they, they kind of have this um, tag that because they can't make it in any other career path, that's why they end up in sales, right? But tech sales is totally different. And this is the first realization I had when I came into Salesforce because I met so many great people, great calibers. And the money is just great too. Maybe mm-hmm. only a little bit less well-paid than banking. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for my own salary, just to give you a reference, um, excluding stock options and other benefits, just my OTE. So that's base plus commission. For my mm-hmm. first SRO in 2007, it was 50000 Singapore dollar. 2007. 2007, yes. Wow, and, okay. And uh, so my engineering job, the offer, the offer was about the same, was about the same uh, 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 OT, like annual, annual package, including 30 months, huh? Okay. And then mm. for my EBR role, it jumped to 80,000 Singapore dollar. So that mm. was my prospecting role. And then when I become AE, I, I work in a few different companies, right? So the salary is ranging from 120K to 180K Singapore dollar. And that mm. was from 2012. Yep. Yeah. And, so, and I want to give some context, right, Emily, if you don't mind. So that was like, say, 2012. So 2012, it was, you mentioned 120 and above. Uh, even today, some people may be getting paid uh, 120, sorry, 112, for example for a starting AE role. So you can imagine that was almost 10 years ago. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's actually a lot during that period. Yes, it was. It was very good pay. Let me put it this way, if it hasn't reached you. <laughs> and mm. and, um, and uh, sales management, uh, I have not been offered that myself, okay? But I heard mm. through very good headhunter friends that it could go anywhere from like 180K to 300K, depending on the level, you know, whether you are a just manager of a small team or manager of the enterprise team or director or VP of APEC, for example. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so now let's go back to the career path because um, you said there are two paths, right? And the first path was going into sales leadership. So typically mm. that path may look like, you know, assuming you start from SDR, BDR, and then you go into AE, right? And then you become a sales manager of a, a small team or enterprise team. 
and then you may become sales director slash country manager. Mm-hmm. And then you could become the VP of sales of a region, like for example, APEC. And then you could still go to VP of sales global. And I think that's pretty much the top, the end, <laughs> if you follow yeah. this path. Yeah. And I think this is also the most typical path that people consider you as successful in sales. You, that, mm-hmm. that you made it. Okay. Um, yep. and, I, and since I have jumped like switched a few different companies, I can tell you that if this is the path you want to go, then it really helps you if you join the company when it's still at an early stage. Because then you can have an enormous uh, space to grow into management position when they are adding headcounts and expand. So, so So out of the four companies I worked, I could see that happened uh, in Salesforce, in Tableau, and possibly in Lumas. Yeah. And, mm. um, but the downside of management role is that the responsibility is very heavy. If hitting your own number is already considered stressful, just imagine carrying at least five people's number and making sure your team hit the quota and hopefully each of them also reach their individual numbers. That is the challenge. I am a mother of three and I really see the similarity of nurturing your team the same way as nurturing your children. Maybe just nurturing your team is a little bit easier. (laughs) and, And some people are naturally born with such ability to nurture other people. And I have met some of them who could be a good salespeople and a good sales manager. And I would say it would be a real waste if they didn't become a manager. Yeah, so, mm. so I think those kind of people, if you are that kind of people, then this is the path for you. You will get a lot of satisfaction from your job and you will also earn loads of money. No doubt on that. Yeah. yeah. But, but okay. I think, of course, Emily, as, as you mentioned, it, it can be stressful, right? Because... I ever had someone on the podcast tell me that the thing about being sales management or leadership is that you're dealing with the, the, a lot of the times what you're dealing with is not related to sales anymore. It's related to people. Yeah. Yes. So that's the majority of your job. But of course, many people may say, well, then I'll just choose to sell all the way. I just sell higher and higher products, enterprise from you know uh, low level kind of products to more expensive enterprise products. That's actually... A lot of people may think that way as well. Yeah, I'm just going to be a very good salesperson all the way. So yeah, as we are going to that, that's the kind of second path, right? Any thoughts on that? So this second path, uh, so it's like an AE, AE role, right? And then you could be, many of them, the one I have seen become field sales AE, like really experienced mm-hmm. ones, enterprise level. And then they do that until retirement. Mm-hmm. And these, some of these people I met are the ones I respected the most because we know this game is like a quarter on quarter, hitting your quota, right? It's a lot of tenacity, commitment, skills. But when I ask them why, and it's not like these people cannot become a manager. Actually, many of them could have that ability to also managing a team, but they choose not to. And the reason is because exactly the one you mentioned earlier, that they don't want to deal with the people management aspect. And by that, I don't just mean managing downwards on your team. 
but also managing upwards to your bosses and mm. possibly many other departments. So, so that's the that's a totally different game than comparing to just being selling and sell to an external customer. You know, mm. I have met um, very experienced enterprise sales people that say, you know, sometimes it's easier to deal with the external outsiders than deal with your internal people. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I would also add on that if people choose this path, their salary would pretty much the same as a mm. needle-level uh, sales management role, like at least a sales director kind of pay. Mm. If you yep. become the like really experienced, like 15 years enterprise sales rep. Yeah. Now, what path three may look like is you become, you, you are starting from SDR, BDR, you become an AE. And then you try it a little while, you feel this may not be the thing for you. Sales is not the thing for you. So what could you do then? You actually could go into other departments. I have seen people going from AE to marketing, for example, or AE to sales ops, or AE to sales engineer, or yep. AE to training like myself, or AE to customer success manager, or renewal manager. Mm. So you can see all these departments are actually our team when we are AE, right? We interact with all of them during a deal cycle. And it is less frequently seen for people to go into these other departments, mostly because the salary of these other departments are you know, much lesser comparing to sales, sales role. But I personally know people who made all these switches so, do, mm. so they do exist. And I would say the people who make those switches are for different reasons. Some may want more work-life balance and feel sales jobs are too stressful, you know, after they mm. have a family, typically. And some um, will just feel that the nature of sales is not for them and they like the other things more. Mm. And I would say that the skill you got after doing sales, especially the communication skills, and the people skills would help you easily switch to all these other departments. And yep. actually for the younger SDR BDRs, I hope that if you already feel AE is not the right thing for you, don't be afraid to make the switch. And also don't feel that you have to become an AE and then to make the switch. Because it's mm. really depending on what you want, right? Sometimes people think becoming an AE will kind of give them more weight on their resume. But on the other hand, I will say that it will also take more time from the past that you could start earlier and accumulate experience in a different role, right? So it really, it, it really you know, this is like individual basis and you have to make your own choice. But all I'm saying is that don't be restricted in your thinking. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I have to add on, right? I, I think it's not just about the communication skills, but also as a SDR, BDR, you become very good at research, understanding mm. why yes. the product exists, understanding pain points. And if you put it into marketing, marketing, yes, it's about, you know, the, 
it could be content marketing, whatever, but at the core is to first understand how can we tell people that our product can solve your problem or something. And I think really uh, being a BDR-SDR, I, I recall, you really have a lot of core skills to help you to do a lot of the jobs, like you said, marketing, customer success, a lot easier. Uh, so so yeah, I, I've personally also seen people who go into from SDR to customer success, uh, to marketing, and sometimes even to uh, sales engineers. I've seen that before as well, yeah, so which is very common. Yeah. Um, and the fourth pass, which there is a fourth pass, uh, will look something like you become an AE and you may do uh, even a sales manage management role for a while and then you'll become an entrepreneur. And for my mm-hmm. case, actually is AE and then sales trainer and then entrepreneur. Yeah, so this mm-hmm. in-between part could be anything, you know, but the final end is you become your own boss. Now, yeah. th- this is the path I chose for myself. Um, but if I could say one thing to my 22-year-old, then I would say that this is definitely not an easy path. It's not easier than being a salesperson and achieving your sales number. And it may not earn you more, more money than staying in sales. Mm. So just have that in mind. But if you want freedom and in some sense, also job security, because in my past later, I will also mention about the layoff scenario. So mm. you, I, I myself never felt like um, I could just have the safety of doing one job until I retire. So I was mm. always kind of having a little, um, you know, plan B at the back of my head. Like, you know, what, will, what if this happened? What, how could I cope? And I eventually felt that uh, entrepreneur is the path that will suit both my desire for freedom and also to give me this uh, feeling of being secure. Because if I have my own customer, even though it, it could be just less than 10, but I would be, not be depending on a company to pay me a salary. And that is also what Rich Dad Poor Dad mentioned in his quadrant, right? Uh, but I have not become a big business. I'm just going from employee to self-employed. That's all. <laughs> Let yeah. me make that very clear. And I also want to say that um, another good friend of mine also made this kind of jump. He was an enterprise field AE for a very, very long time. And then he became an entrepreneur and his business is opening a comedy club in Singapore. Mm, mm. And, and and so these are the kind of not very often taken paths. I think most of the AE turned entrepreneur paths I have seen is that they will choose to become the reseller or partner of of one of the companies they have worked for. And yep. and that is especially relevant for APAC region because for the language barrier and the cultural barrier, you know, the, this uh, American company or other foreign companies, it's very hard to come in, right? So whoever controls the customer base is the king. And I know several resellers of this model that they could resell many brands of non-competing products to their customer base. And it was just 
much easier than being a salesperson and selling for a foreign brand that first come into APEC. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I think the reason is because trust and brand awareness takes a long time to build. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so for, 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 for many experienced salespeople, if they feel that, you know, playing that always entry market game is too tiring or heavy, they may choose this path. Yeah. And they are selling something they knew. Right, the product they're familiar with, so the risk is also very low for themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, that, and I, yeah, and I think, like you say, right, I think it's not just the connections or the experience they have, but I think this entrepreneur route, you know, even I've thought about it before. I think it helps that in sales, you have a mindset of, you have this mindset that okay, I have a number I need to hit, I have a quota, so your mind is trained to okay, I need to bring in revenue, I need to bring in revenue. And when you run your own business, you, you firstly you don't have a base pay, you pay mm -hmm. yourself. But mm -hmm. then, but your men, mental state is really ready for that. You know that you constantly have to bring in revenue. So I think it's very interesting that you talk about that fourth path, which is entrepreneurship. Yeah, and I will also add the last uh, path, path five, five, which is what if you have to exit the game voluntarily, and by that I mean a sudden layoff. I know one of your previous podcasts has already talked about this. Um, and although this is not the past that most people like to think or talk about, but I think it's very relevant for our present time. Because I think starting from my time going into sales, I have already seen a few times of layoff, just myself. Mm. Uh, there are companies who go bust or being merged. Or um, sometimes they are just at the starting phase and there is the invisible hand of the capital behind it. And mm. so I see that people are treated more and more like a resource rather than a, a loyal employee. And it is seen that salespeople can be easily replaced, but it is actually not true. Okay. Mm. Um, it's not enough time for me to talk in depth about this in this podcast, but all I want to say is if you got a good reputation in all the companies you have worked for as a salesperson, you would have friends to help you during this difficult time. The mm. few times that I witnessed a layoff, the people I knew being laid off uh, actually all find a new job quite easily within a few months' time. So mm. I think that proved my my earlier point that salespeople cannot be easily replaced and actually they are constantly in shortage. So mm. I still, I still, you know, given all this talk about AI and, you know, automation, uh, I still feel that salespeople is a trade that is not going to die off mm. in my lifetime. Yeah. 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 Maybe in my lifetime as well. I, I'm not <laughs> sure. We'll see because now you have a lot of companies who are, let's say, product-led growth. Uh, but interestingly enough, even product-led growth companies have AEs to either sell bigger, uh, you know, bigger ACV, bigger annual contract value or something. So there's mm -hmm. actually a lot of, even salespeople still exist despite all the talks that's going around. And, and do you know why? Have you ever thought why? 
Well, why, why we have product-led growth? No, why that despite they are product-led, they still need AEs? Yeah. I mean, I, I can give my own thoughts on it, but I would love to hear yours as well once I share mine. Uh, I mean, personally, I, I think the thing with product-led growth is you can't control what is, you can control to a certain extent what is shown to the um, customer, could be on the web page or whatever. But I think the things that's missing is that you can't diagnose. I don't know if that's the right word to use for you can't diagnose, which means that it's a, it's a one-way thing. The company go, customer goes to a website uh -huh. and then they buy something. Yeah. But you can't yeah. diagnose and say, okay, why do you come to me in the first place? What's your use case? What's your thing? There's exactly. something that is missing. Yeah. Mm. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, so they don't have this feedback loop. Although, technically speaking, this should fall under marketing. It is marketing and product marketing's job to get this feedback from their existing customer base and understand, you know, what why they buy, what they like, you know. Um, but I will actually give a, a different angle. I think despite that you, you guys, when you enter sales, you're already talking about persona, right? You already understand the customer profile. You are not treating all of your customer like the same one individual. But people vary so differently, so greatly, right? So mm. no matter how much uh, marketing segment, they could never do it to the level as a salesperson's one-to-one -one kind of personal interaction. Mm. That, yep. that can never be replaced by automated emails or podcasts or videos or whatever you name it, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are human and we are human for a reason. So I think that that is my 40-year-old wisdom. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that, you know, after I sell and also being a parent and understand this whole journey, I think it's not, it's not that easy. Yeah. And I would... Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add on, right, Emily, e even more so in this region, because Southeast Asia, for example, or ASEAN yeah. or APEC, yeah. you have so many different cultures, so many different exactly. types of... Yeah, even more so, you need someone with a personal relationship with this end consumer, or maybe not professional relationship, but a, a, a relationship that is tight enough, that is close enough to, to kind of bring them over the edge uh, to, yeah. to purchase something. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. And... I mean, of course, like you say, we, we may not have as much time in this podcast. Maybe next time we can invite you back again to talk about <laughs> other things. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I mean, one thing we have to talk about, one thing we have to talk about is that very early on uh, in this podcast, you say that, you know, right now you are, I, the, the word I use is semi-retired. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, do correct me if the word I use is not right. But basically, the way I look at it is now you're running your own business. Um, mm -hmm. If I'm not wrong, something you work maybe two to three days a week, the rest of the time you are taking care of your kids, spending time with your family, learning Dutch probably. Um, yeah. And I remember in on LinkedIn you had this article which basically says that like states that you are semi-retired at 40. So in a sense, you reach this what we call financial freedom, where today, even if you don't have a job, it's not something you have to worry. You don't have to worry that you can't eat, you don't have to worry that you don't have a place to stay. So you kind of reach this place where not just salespeople, but a lot of people want to be at this stage, semi-retired stage at your age. So tell us a little bit about, I guess, how do you do it? You know, what got you to where you are today? Um, I mentioned Rich Dad Poor Dad already. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the other book that also greatly shaped my financial caution is uh, Millionaire Next Door. Um, and I would say this book is a lot more important than Rich Dad Poor Dad because it's about controlling the cost. Um, mm. If I put, because I already written two articles on this topic, so if I would just summarize it briefly, how I did it, I, I didn't spend everything I earned on the things that I feel not necessary. Like, for example, I have uh, colleagues who will buy a Chanel bag if they reach their quota or buy the very uh, Jimmy Choo shoes. Mm. Uh, And then there's nothing wrong about that. These are all my good friends and they earn the money and they choose how they spend it. It's all great. Um, But for me, myself, those things didn't really bring much pleasure uh, to me in the first place. Uh, and second is I knew that I didn't want to uh, work my entire life. I, and I was very much inspired by the rich that poor that because it tell me a roadmap, like what you do so that you don't have to work until you are 50 or 60s. Or let me put it the other way. I could choose to work on the things I want to work for as long as I want. And I do not have to be um, put in a job and people will say, oh, you are too old or, you know, you, 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 like you, you can't do this job, basically. Um, so uh, I, I, earned, I earned a good salary, like we already said, and I save as much as possible. I, I think I shared in the post my cost of living in 2007, 2008 was something like 2000 per month. And that mm. is with my husband at that time, my boyfriend. So, uh, but we were both uh, earning like a starter salary, like a 3000 per month. So together we can earn 6000 and we will save the 4000 aside. And that, oh. that's kind of the extent of how we got our first bucket of gold. If, if you name it that way. And um, and it also helped greatly that Singapore is not a heavily taxed uh, country. I mean, besides mm. what we have to pay to CPF, I mean, in, if I was starting my career in Netherlands, then 40 to 50% of my salary will go to the pension fund. So then I couldn't yeah. save as much cash on hand. Yeah. So, so that's another thing I didn't realize until I came to Netherlands. Um, and, and I would say that uh, it's really just have the cadence, the discipline to really control your spending. Uh, and, and, and after you got the money, uh, what we did was we first actually invested in our first company. Um, and it was uh, registered in Singapore in 2008. Uh, because my, my life plan actually has my husband also in it. Yeah, actually, I have to mention that you call me semi-retired, right? But um, my husband is actually the one that's also semi-retired, but he's the one that brings in all the money for running the household now. So I could have the freedom, mm-hmm. you know, to not worry about this aspect. Uh, but yep. very early on, um, I introduced Rich Dad Poor Dad to him, and we both read 
um, in 2004. And then um, the plan, so the plan was I will work in corporate first while he built up the company. And when the company take off, I could also kind of semi-retire from the corporate world. And that's pretty much what we have uh, achieved by now. And wow. uh, so, so my second part of the success story is it does help if you have a partner <laughs> to do this, yeah. help you together, because then you kind of have a safety line, right? One of you is in the entrepreneurship path, but the other one's still in the corporate world. So kind of buffer the, the risk a little bit. And yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the, 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 the third thing I would say is we really share a very uh, similar financial view on things. So I'm not a big spender. He is not. And when we spend, we make plan budgeting. And, and if you do not really um, know how to do budgeting, I will recommend you to hear another podcast, um, which I will send you the link. And that is a entrepreneur who actually turned his business of, you know, uh, using Excel to do his own home budget into an app that help just average common people to budget their household. And he's also very much a follower of Millionaire Next Door. So, you know, mm. there is, um, it's not just me. I, all I want to say is it's not just me. I'm, I'm just very ordinary, very common. And I actually didn't inherit anything from my parents. Everything I earn is myself, but it's just, I know the book, I follow what they say, and I started early, and that's all. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, now people tell me as the FIRE movement, right? You know, uh, I can't remember what's the acronym, but it's called FIRE movement, financial independence early or something like that. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've reached that product before. That was actually my first business book, if you can call it. But yeah, I, I, I learned a lot from me as well of this whole concept of employer, self-employed, businessmen and, and uh, investors. So yeah, I, I think it's really very simple lessons and definitely share with me the links as well as to your article. I think, but I think one thing that I really want to say here is, is this, and I think this is important for, I guess, my generation is that you had patience. You know, mm. I, I think that's something I want to point out because it took you, you know, 10 plus years and not just you yourself together with, you know, your now husband uh, to get to where you are. So it's not a within two, three years kind of thing. I think because, because, you know, my, my generation, we have a lot more social media. We, we want yeah. things fast, you know, a lot of things. So I, I really want to point that out and that, that is patience. And I think that's something very inspiring for me as well that, you know, now I'm also taking my small steps, having the savings, investment, putting a set percentage aside. So I'm just telling myself, okay, now I see the stocks all going down, but I tell myself, be patient one day. <laughs> one day it will go up again because that's the market cycle, right? Yes, yes. Oh, and, and I didn't mention this, but those stock options that in a tech sales company, they give you, oh, those are also really great part of, the, I mean, of getting my first bucket of gold. I remember when I was um, just getting my first batch of uh, Salesforce stock, they were just like 30 USD per stock. Mm. And, and later they go to like a few hundreds. Um, yep. So yeah, so I, I think among all of my stock investment, those are the best <laughs> yield <laughs> stocks. Yep. Yeah, I, 
I can tell you Salesforce is very expensive now because I do own maybe a handful of Salesforce. Maybe, not that much. I, know, I can't buy that much as well. It's too expensive to buy now. But we, uh, when I was having my uh, contract, they gave something called a restricted stock unit and it is only given to employees. And they use that as a way of retaining you. So they don't give all of them at one time. They will tell you, okay, you got this many stocks, but we will release it every quarter this much so that, you know, I know many people when they want to switch company, they also time their living time to be after the last vesting of all of their stocks. Yep. So yeah, that's something to be in mind. All right. But, and of course, thanks so much for sharing all of that, right, Emily. I think it was really, really beneficial. I know, again, we do not have time to cover everything because like I said in the very beginning, we, we have so much to take from you that I know this episode is not enough. But our time is up and I just have a couple more questions for you, right? And I guess try your best to answer them, uh, you know, uh, and, and tell us your thoughts. So I guess the first question I have is based on today's topic, what is one last message you have for younger people or younger tech sales professionals like myself and many others who are listening? Okay. I think I, I briefly mentioned this uh, earlier. And the one lesson I feel really important for your guys is to protect your reputation as a salesperson from day one and treasure it as if it's the most valuable thing of your career. And I will share my individual story with you to illustrate how important this is. Uh, when I go to work at Tableau, my direct boss was the boss that I worked for. I worked at uh, Salesforce. And they were also, um, so they, so, so my, my, my boss at Tableau was actually the, is the boss of my boss at Salesforce. I don't know if that's clear. Oh. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but I didn't know that. I only knew that after I was hired and my boss at Tableau actually told me that he did a reference check of me with my boss and at Salesforce and heard all the good things about me. And then I was like, oh my God, I would never thought about this when I was at Salesforce. And actually mm. this is not a unique instance. Many managers, especially if they are a long time in the industry, they know many, many people. And now with the help of LinkedIn, they can easily check who, who in their network has worked in the same company as you. So, so that is what I mean by your reputation is probably the most valuable asset and you really can't afford to make a, even a tiny tint on it because I have also heard stories where just, I mean, these things go around very, very easily. And when, when, when people talk about this person, they will say, oh, we actually have heard there's this uh, sexual harassment case on this particular person or that would be, or even if they would just, you know, mention something about your work ethic, that, that is really, um, that's really going to uh, impact your career. So, so mm. that is the one thing I hope the listeners will take away from this podcast. Yeah. And I do just to add on, I think Warren Buffett said something similar before, like takes years to build a reputation, but, just seconds to 
break it. Yes. I think something along that lines. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Emily. Uh, last two questions before we go into our fun rapid fire questions. Um, okay. First question is, what do you love about what you do at this moment? I love the freedom it gives me. Mm. Okay. And of course, the last thing is, what gets you out of bed every morning? The feeling of I am contributing something to this world and I'm helping someone, you know, other than my immediate family to overcome something. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And of course, we have to come to our rapid fire questions. Now, how we are going to do this is very simple. I will have okay. a couple of questions. Uh, uh -huh. Some of the beginning ones will be quite easy. The ending ones may be a little bit deep, uh, but try your best to answer it as quickly as possible. Uh, either with okay. one word, one sentence, or yeah, just as quickly as possible. You ready? Yeah. Okay, first question. Now, which household chore in your, in your house do you absolutely despise doing? Ironing. Ironing. I have to agree with you on that. Because now I stay, by my, stay with uh, renting, so I have to do my own ironing. I don't like that as well. Okay. Next question. What is your favorite thing to do in the Netherlands? I would say to walk in the nature area just you know, after our village. And uh, you know, in all the different seasons, you will see the leaves turning into different colors. And yeah, that's the part I enjoy the most. And then we have a garden also. Oh, nice. So we grow okay. out our own vegetables, things like that. Yeah. Nice. And the question is, what has been your favorite, uh, or where has been your favorite family vacation? I think it has to be the one we went to Abu Dhabi in 2018. And oh. the kids really love it because we went to the desert and, we, and they, they were not in the legal age, but the driver was an Indian and he was very friendly. So he let my son sit on his lap and take the steering wheel while the rest of us was all sitting in there. And we go from the sand dunes like a, like a roller coaster, you know. I think that yeah. was the part that they, they all remember until this day. Yeah, I can imagine that's very, very memorable for, for, for your kids at that young age. Yeah. Nice. Uh, okay, so this next question, you may have kind of already talked about it, but what is one podcast or book that you will always recommend someone? Well, one is really difficult because I already mentioned Rich Dad Poor Dad and Millionaire Next Door. Those are two. Yes. And there's uh, this one other uh, podcast, uh, which is recorded by my good friend, Deep. He interviewed this entrepreneur that started this company, but I just can't remember the, the name now. But I will let you know the link. And that was one of the best podcasts on financial freedom or management mm. I have heard. Yeah. Okay. So we'll take those three as the answer Then you can, can send it to me afterwards. Um, okay, next one. Uh, what have you done that you are the most proud of? Uh, well, I think it has to be um, during one of the management meeting, I spoke up on the leaving of one of uh, the sales team member. I might write that as one of the article later in more details. But mm. yeah, I feel very proud because I think the person deserves a lot of recognition 
in terms of understanding why the person didn't make the number, but it wasn't the person's fault. And mm. I just, um, so, and I, because I was uh, the trainer at that time, right? So I was very aware of the situation. So, so I speak up for, on behalf of this person. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I have to personally say I like that because sometimes in sales, you can get too much about the numbers sometimes. You know, but but I think I, I love the fact that you are doing that for someone, and you know, uh, I think it means a lot. Honestly, but, I think. But it means I do a lot. have, yeah. But I do have to add that when I decided to do that, I knew this could have a very bad impact if should I stay in the company. But at that time, I already knew I, I'm going to leave to go to Netherlands, <laughs> so I kind of have less, you know, things to to consider before I do that. I, I just want to make that clear because I don't want to seem to be like a hero or something. I'm, I'm actually a very practical person in that sense. Okay, okay. I guess that gives you more, more, more courage than back then. Okay, uh, last two questions. Um, what is something that you hope you'll be doing in 10 years time? Oh, that must be my school. I, for my freelance coaching, I have founded uh, Emily Yu School of Sales. And in my mind, I hope that if in 10 years time, it could become like the Hogwarts of which and visitory school for all the aspiring young salespeople around the world, that they will know this school and they will come here to find whatever they need to become a good salesperson. I think that will make me feel tremendously successful and fulfilled. Nice. And the last one, probably something more to your personal life. What, what is the best thing about being a mother? Oh, uh, actually, I, I feel there's no best part of being a mother. <laughs> everything is good for you. No, everything is... Okay, I have to say I'm not the typical mother type. I'm not the... You know, some mother, some women, their whole life, is to become a mother. And once they become a mother, they feel like so happy and they feel joy. And, you know, uh, every day is like their best day. Mm. I am the, I think I'm the complete opposite. I, yeah. um, okay, in my household, my husband is more like, like when I was working in the corporate world and he was starting a business, actually he was the primary caregiver to our kids he will bring them to kindergarten bring them home eat dinner with them and of course we have a helper uh, to to do all the housework in singapore okay um but i really how should i say i i feel i am better suited to be the breadwinner role <laughs> than the caring mother role <laughs> i think that gives you a good enough answer Okay. Okay. Yeah, we we will we'll accept that answer because because that's from your real thoughts, right? Yeah. But uh, but yeah, thank you so much, Emily. I I think with that, you know, we have unfortunately come to the end. Uh, there's there's so much more things that we can cover maybe sometime in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely for our listeners who are tuning in, uh, if let's say they want to find a way to reach you, what's the best way to reach you? LinkedIn. You can find Emily you on LinkedIn. Yep. And I'll make sure I'll put that uh, your LinkedIn URL in my podcast. And of course, your website, your articles, 
let them let me know, send them over to me, and I would love to put them in as well in the episode description. Uh, but I think with that, you know, we have come to the end. And first here, I want to say to all the listeners for tuning in, thank you so much. This is definitely a longer episode, but I, I feel really happy that we can hear from Emily and her kind of decades and years of experience. So definitely feel free to connect with me and Emily. Uh, by clicking on our profile link and let us know any feedback, suggestion, and feel free to reach out to Emily anytime and she'll be happy to help you. But with that, we are looking forward to the next one. Everybody, take care, stay safe, and have a good one. Emily, you can say bye to our guests. Okay, goodbye. Wish everyone all the best, especially for Asher. Hope this right. podcast will go a long way. I really feel this is a great initiative. Yeah. Thanks so much, Emily. Right, take care, everybody. Bye.